in chapter 27, what just happened was Jacob and his mother Rebekah conspired with each other to deceive Isaac, the father, and steal the blessing of Esau, the other son. So what you have is, is one parent chose one child, and the other parent chose the other child as their favorites, and each parent was conspiring against each other and against the other son to get their way. And so in the closing verses of chapter 27, Esau, the offended brother, has in verse 41 of chapter 27, it says that Esau bore a grudge, and he, just, and, he, and he vowed to himself that when my father is dead and we have done mourning him, I will kill Jacob. Well, that was not a newsflash to Rebecca, the mother. She knew about it, and so what she wanted to do was she wanted to save her favorite son from that possibility. So she created this problem. Now, there, the, the, the beautiful thing about this story is we can all see ourselves in these stories. And so there's not a person in this room has never been in a circumstance that they didn't want to be in, so they create a problem to get out of the circumstance. And Rebecca did that. She said she wanted to protect Jacob, and so what she did, she said, well, Esau's married all these Canaanite foreign women, and they are detestable to me, and my life is not worth living if my favorite son Jacob marries one of these women. So just put me down now. That was her created problem that was just so overbearing to her that she couldn't stand it. And Isaac, being a great, passive, unleading husband, said, Oh, I understand, honey. I'd hate for that to happen to you. So they take Jacob and they decide, We're going to send him to Haran. We're going to send Jacob to, to Rebekah's family. Where, she can, where he can get a wife among some good folk. Well, later on, you're going to read this story, and you're going to find out that Haran, they were as treacherous as Jacob and his mother was. So anyway, so what you open up with here in the beginning of chapter 28 is that, J- is that Isaac calls Jacob. He blesses him. He says, look, don't take a wife from these Canaanites. Go to your, your mother's family. Verse 2, go to your mother's family. You're going to find a daughter there. But this is what he says here. In verses 3 and 4, Isaac bestows on Jacob the very blessing God had given Abraham and promised that Abraham's descendants would enjoy, in in the promises that Abraham's descendants would enjoy. So let's look at verse 3. He says, May God Almighty bless you. This is Isaac talking to Jacob. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. That's directly from Genesis 12, when God first stepped into Abraham's life, and he first said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and your descendants will be too numerous to count. And then in verse 4, he says, he, May he also give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you, that you may possess the land of your sojournings, which God gave to Abraham. That is also exactly what God said to Abraham in Genesis 12. And then God took that promise in in, in Abraham's life and he restates it. He reconfirms it. He says, look, don't grow weary. Don't get discouraged. This is going to happen. He does that numerous times in those chapters from chapter 12 to about chapter 22 of Genesis as he's dealing with Abraham's life. 
Don't get discouraged. Don't get promised. Don't get discouraged. Don't get overwhelmed or disillusioned. The promise is still true. That promise was handed down to Isaac. And now here's Isaac being giving that promise to Jacob. So notice also in this, and so in verse 5, it says that um, Isaac leaves. Now notice verse 6. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Paddan Aram and to take a wife for himself there. And that when he blessed him, he charged him, saying, Do not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Paddan Aram. So Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan displeased his father. And, to Esau went, and Esau went to Ishmael and married, besides the wives he already had, he married two daughters, or married the daughter of Ishmael. So here is Esau. Esau had been the favored son of Jacob, the one that Jacob wanted to bless from the very beginning. The one that, I mean, that's if they, when everyone chose their sides in this, in this contest, Isaac chose Esau. But when the treachery happened, And when everything settled, when the dust settled, Esau was no longer the favored child. And so now he's doing anything he can to hurt the father and the mother, but in this case, the father. And so what he says is, hey, they don't like these women. That's the very women I'll marry. But you want to know something? It's just not these women. I'm going to go to the black sheep of the family. I'm going to go to the very people that they would most dislike. And that's the people. I'll take a wife from. And so who does he go to? Ishmael. The black sheep, the family member that no one talks to, the one that's got sent away, and he goes to that one and says, I'll take a wife from there. You don't like me taking women from this here? I'll take one that you really, really hate. And you see how the relationship has gotten twisted and warped now from being a favored son to I will hurt you where it hurts most. It's one thing to be hurt accidentally, isn't it? It's another thing to be hurt on purpose right where it hurts. And that is what Esau's done. Verse 10, let's start here. Matter of fact, let me just pause one more moment. This is the last mention. Verse 8, verse 9 of this chapter is the last mention of Esau until we get to chapter 33. 20 years will pass before we come back to Esau again, where he enters the story. So Jacob begins his trip to Haran, and he ends up spending one night in the city of of Luz. We're going to read this story from verse 10 to verse 22 here. Then Jacob departed from Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head, and and he laid down in that place. And he had a dream, and behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its tops reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Now, this is the first time we get this imagery. The, The only other time we get this imagery is in the Gospels, where Jesus is talking to Nathaniel. And, and, he, and he says to Nathaniel, you think it's something that I knew you, what you were thinking underneath that tree? You just wait around. You just wait around because it's coming a day and time when you will see the angels. And he does the same imagery again. Only two times it mentions it. 
Verse 13, And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac, and in the land on which you lie, I will give it to you and your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust on the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, and I will not leave you until I am done with what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. It's kind of like, what have I stumbled into, you know? He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? There is none other than the house of this is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So Jacob rose early in the morning and he took the stone that he had had under his head and he set it up as a pillar and he he poured oil on its top. And he called the place, and he called the name of this place Bethel. However, previously the name of the city had been Luz. Bethel, that literally means the house of God. And you're going to find that there is no other city in all of the Old Testament that is mentioned as much as Bethel except for Jerusalem. It becomes a major significant site in the religious life of the Israelites. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear and I will return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. This stone which I've set up as a pillar will be God's house. And, all, and of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. And that's the first mention of a tithe. So, I mean, like, I'm not the one that talks about it. Jacob started all this. If you don't like tithe, then talk to Jacob, all right? That's all I got to say about that. As you read the story, isn't it interesting that the author, Moses, he, he, he makes this interesting detail of exactly what Jacob laid his head on. You know, and as you read the story, you kind of wonder why. You know, and you get later on, you learn that he's going to make this stone a monument to God. Um, but that's why when, when as, as students of the Bible, whenever you see these little details, you like go, why is that there? You know, it's just a sign to start digging right there. You know, start digging at that place. When you don't understand why that detail's there, you know, start digging at that detail to find out why it's there. In this case, it was very evident. In other cases, you might have to dig further before you get that little piece of gold that is just a joy to have. All right? So now this dream, the ladder, and angels descending and ascending to and from has been interpreted in a variety of ways. I used this particular image because it looked like that image in my children's Bible when I was a kid. You know what I'm talking about? The same one that had Jesus at the big stone boulder with its glowing, you know, and all. That same kind of image. I love all of those images out of that children's Bible. And so there's lots of images out there. This one I like because it reminds me of my children's Bible. So you see him there, you know, he's got his head on that stone and there's the angels coming up and down this ladder there. Well, this, this imagery here has been interpreted in a variety of ways. And, and really what happens is you begin to see how people handle the Bible and you begin to see how people interpret the Bible based on what they do with these kind of passages. Because many would take it and they'll make, come up with these elaborate explanations for what that is. When often it's just a ladder. And often it's just angels coming up and down it. 
And so there are lots of ways you can interpret this passage. I tend to fall in more of a, that's a ladder with angels and all. And, and what I would say if I'm going to pull the symbolism out of it, it's basically that it's just saying that I would just take, take it from this. And I would say that demonstrates exactly the way that God works with man. It is always, it is always God condescending to mankind. It is always God coming down to mankind. Mankind never goes looking for God. In the garden, what happened? God went looking for Adam. And that is just the way it is. Mankind never goes looking for God. God always condescends to mankind. As a matter of fact, that is, you see it throughout Scripture. You see that God has come down to mankind in so many different forms and ways. He, he came down in the form of a cloud with Moses and the children of Israel. He was a tower of fire with Moses and the Israelites. He was a burning bush with Moses. He was in the form of man with Abraham. In chapter 19, the three men came and sat with him and had a meal right before they went down to um, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. In all these instances, God is initiating the relationship. And he's the one that's seeking man and meeting his needs and keeping, his, and keeping the promises that God made. And it's in Jesus that we see that God coming down to man in the most ultimate fashion. Galatians 4 says, But when the right time came, God sent his son born of a woman. Romans 3 says, God did, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man, as an offering for sin, and thus he condemned sin in the flesh. So here he is again. God sent his son in the likeness of men. John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then Philippians 2, 5 through 8, this only has part of the verse on, I'll read the whole verse. Having this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God, God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. This morning... If you've, if you've never, ever considered the fact that Jesus came to earth and why he came to earth, you might know it. I mean, let me just say it. Like in America, most people really kind of know the basic story of Jesus. Now, granted, that's changing dramatically. Most people know that Jesus came to earth to do some good stuff. But this morning... I'm asking you that if you've never really considered that Jesus came to earth to pay the penalty for your sin, to die a death he didn't have to die, that you would consider that today. Each of us owe a penalty for the things we've done wrong. And God asked us to not work harder, to not do something, to not burn incense, to not do all those things, he says this, he says, to believe. The only thing you have to do to step into a spiritual relationship with God is to not do anything, it is to believe something different. And that thing he's asking you to believe is to stop believing that you can save yourself, 
to stop believing that you can do it yourself, to stop believing that there's something, that you're a part of the equation of all. What he's asking you to do is just to believe. And the question you have to ask then is, what is he asking me to believe? What? What is it? And the answer is just very simple, just a few words. And it's the simplicity of those words that many, many people stumble over and say, I just can't believe that. That Jesus died for your sins and that all you have to do to take that death for yourself, to take that payment of sins, is to believe that. That that's too simple. God's ways are not our ways. And while it's simple for you, it was deadly for him. It was deadly for him. And so God is just simply saying, stop believing you can do this and just believe that Jesus did it for you. And so this morning, if you've never ever really thought about that, today I would ask you to consider the great love God has for you. And today, in the silence of your own heart, just say, I, God, I don't understand all this, but today I want to start believing that Jesus paid for my sins so I don't have to. It's that simple. So let's do this because I haven't done this in a long time. This is a refresher course for many of you, okay? This line right here, this line right here is that moment of time when you trust Christ. Prior to this line, everything on this side of this line is just your life. You live it however you want to. No one's telling you how to do things. You know it's my own truth. But then you come to this place in this time in your life where someone, maybe today in this room here today, you come to this place in this time where someone said, stop believing you can save yourself. Stop believing you have to go to church in a bunch of times that you have to, to like crawl on glass or to, to walk little ladies across the road. Stop believing all that. And come to this point in time in life where you say, I believe that Jesus died for my sins and I want to take him as my personal savior and take that forgiveness he gave me. This point in time, that was free. He didn't ask you to do anything for that. And in that point in time, God embeds the Holy Spirit into your heart. And in that point in time, he adopts you into his family. And in that point in time, he looks at you, and from there on, he always says, this child of mine, the blood of Christ has paid for his sins, and I'm taking him right into my family. He never looks at you with condemnation. He never looks at you with anger or anything else like that. He accepts you lovingly just as you are. But let it never be said that Crossing Community Church said you could trust Christ and live like hell. Because on this side of that line, he demands obedience. And that is hard as hell. Because what it means is, is I'll say, I won't live the way I want to live anymore. I'm going to live the way God wants me to live. I will deny myself. I'll deny the things I want to do because God doesn't want me to do those things. And I will begin to live that way. That's what he expects. Nothing on that side. And although, let me just make sure this is very clear, on this side of the line, you're not obeying to stay saved. 
you're obeying because God has been so gracious to love you and to redeem you and to pay for your sins. Obedience on this side of the line is your way of saying, I love you. That's what obedience on this side of the line is. It will not keep you saved and does not do anything for you in that regard. It just is how God begins to change you and it's how you demonstrate your love back to him. And so God condescends to mankind in that way. And he comes down, he sends his son. And today, I'm asking you that if you've never, ever trusted Christ before, if you've never, ever heard it that way, ever explained or or ever encountered it that way, that, and if it makes no sense to you at all, come and talk to me. I probably muddy the water some more, but we'll figure it out, okay? Come and talk to me. And my prayer is that there's not a person in this room today that is on this side of the line, but you've moved into this side of the line, into a relationship with Christ and a growing, obedient relationship with him at that. All right? Let's go. Let's keep going. Note the message that God has for Jacob in verses 13 through 15. Listen to what God says to him here. He says, And he had a dream, and behold, uh, I'm sorry, verse 13, And behold, the Lord stood above it, above the ladder, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. So in other words, immediately he goes, hey, it's me. I've been talking to your grandfather. I've been talking to your father. Here I am today. I'm talking to you. From here on out, it's not about what your grandfather heard. It's not about what your grandfather told you. It's not about what Isaac heard. It's not about what Isaac told you. From here on out, it's me and you, Jacob. And Jacob has no idea that in chapter 33, 34, God really takes that to a whole nother level. But he says, here I am, I'm talking to you. I am the Lord, the God of your father and your, fa- your grandfather and your father. And the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your descendants. And your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I'm with you, and I will keep you, and I will bring you back. I will never leave you, and I'll do all that I promised for you. See, what he's just done is he's taken all the promises that he made to Abraham and the promise he made to Isaac, and then he just said, Those weren't just your grandmama's promises or granddaddy's promises. Those are your promises. And he says, and I'm not talking about, and what does he say to Abraham? He says to Abraham, your descendants will have this land. Did you notice what he said in this passage? He said, you will have this land. All of a sudden he says, you're that descendant. You will have this land. The promise has changed. It had been general and future with the previous two generations. But in this generation, it is the promises to this, it is to Jacob himself. Jacob wakes up and the text says that he, there he had terror and adoration. And it's this response we see here where this is the same kind of thing that Moses had at the burning bush. It's the same kind of thing that Isaiah had in Isaiah 6 where he says, woe is me, uh, woe is me. It's something it's something, to, it's something that is so different when one has encountered God in this way. It is so above and beyond all that you've ever seen, all that you've ever imagined. It's otherworldly. It's beyond your greatest imagination. And you don't know if you should be afraid. You don't know how to respond. 
but you know this is something you've never experienced before, and it's scary, but you know that your natural inclination finally in this life is to worship the one true God. And in that excitement, in that, in that moment of just waking up from his dream, he takes the stone he had, he had been sleeping on, and, he, and I would imagine he stood it up on end perhaps, or he put rocks around in some way, and he took oil, and he anointed it like this, and, he, and, and that was their way of, of, making, uh, of signifying something important had just happened. And he, he erects this monument here, and he goes, this is an amazing place because God just visited it. And I'm going to change the name. We're going to call this the house of God. And then what he does is this. Over the next few passages, or what I did, as I studied the next few passages, I read them in two different ways. And in my study, I found that other people do as well. But if you look at the passage and you start I'm sorry, yeah, yeah. In verse, I'm sorry, the next few passages. If you look at the next few passages and you start in verse 20. Look right here in verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God be with me, if he'll keep me, if he'll give me food, if he'll clothe me, and he'll return me to my father's house safely, then the Lord will be my God. So when I first read the passage, I read the passage like this. It's like, If God does this, I will follow him. If God does this, I will follow him. Now, that's not what I think the passage is saying. But I think that many of us would think that because many of us deal with God that way. If God would do this, I'll obey. Many people want God to do something for them, to give them something before they'll commit themselves to him. If you would just give me this, if you would just, if you would just give me just enough money to pay all the bills, I'll be fine and I'll follow you. If you just heal my son, I'll follow you. If you'll just, and you fill in the blank, many of us could fill in the blank with something, can't we? I always say that to you, fill in the blank. But we do that with God. We say, if you would just do this, I will be loyal to you. And we act like this because, quite honestly, we think that we are the center of the universe. We think that, you know, that everything should revolve around us. And I see this in suburbia all the time. Don't put those ball fields in my backyard. I don't want light coming through my window. I'm the center of the universe. I don't want those jets flying over my house. This is all kind of Yardley Newtown kind of stuff, isn't it? Right where we live, because we're the center of the universe. I don't want this disturbing me. I don't want this to affect the way I live. I don't want this to disrupt my life. And so, God, I'll obey you as long as you don't disrupt my life. I'll obey you if. And so, here we are. We're bargaining. Well, you want to know something. Some of us raise our little teeny tiny children that way because our teeny tiny children, they fall on the floor and they stamp their feet and they pound and they kick and they scream and we go, what do you need? What do you want so you don't act that way? And we think we're going to treat God that way. I'm just going to sit right here and I'm not going to do a thing you want me to until you start treating me the way I want to be treated, God. (laughs) You know what he does? He goes, talk to you later. And he leaves you sitting there in that spot. And then you know what you do? God doesn't love me. 
I told him what I needed. I told him what I wanted, and he didn't give it to me. Obviously, God doesn't love me. And so if he doesn't love me, I'm just going to go somewhere else. And then they go to another church. We might tell them that that's the way God does, or else they'll just go into the world and say, the church doesn't work for me. God doesn't work for me because he didn't give me what I wanted, and I deserve that. The other way that we kind of, we kind of um, banter with God is this. It's kind of like this. It would say, I would follow God if he would have done this. I would follow God. I would follow God if my parents hadn't abused me. But that's just scarred me, and I will not follow him. God abandoned me in that moment. I would follow God if he hadn't taken my mother from me when I was 12. But he abandoned me, and I will not follow him. God's not going to respond to that. He's not going to go back and change things to make you believe in him. He's not going to go back and change things to make you love him. Because you see, he loved you even in that circumstance. He loved you even when that terrible thing was happening. And the thing is, is that in our immaturity, in our youth, in our pain, we would say, you know, I'm not going to do this because God didn't do this or he did this when I was a kid. But the fact of the matter is, is that in that pain and in that moment when God did that horrible thing in your mind, he was also the God who says, I'll take this very horrible thing and I will redeem it and make it something far beyond your greatest imagination. Far beyond your greatest imagination. The reason why, and and see, anyway, the reason why the faith-based 12-step programs are so important is because when you talk to someone who is in recovery, who has done it through through a faith-based system, they'll say, I can do AA and have my higher power be an ashtray, but the difference between an ashtray and God is that an ashtray doesn't redeem my life. An ashtray doesn't give me purpose in my pain and all my mistakes. But what God does is God takes all of those mistakes that you have such great shame over, and he takes all those mistakes, and he takes all those bad things that happen to you, and he takes... And he takes the pain that that you experienced when your mother died of cancer when you were at 21, like me. He takes the pain of all those nights when your dad was breaking through the house stone cold drunk like I grew up with. He takes all of that and he says, I'm going to give every single one of those painful things in your life, I'm going to give it purpose. And that very thing, you're going to take it. And one day, in my case, he throws me in front of a church. God knows how that happened. Amen. Thank you very much. (laughs) And he says, it is that stuff that you're going to pull from to begin to minister to people around you. But that's what he's doing with every single one of you. And so whatever it is that you think God did to you, he did that to you to give you purpose and meaning in your life that someone else needs to know that you went through and someone else needs to know that God met you there and that he healed you there and he gave that moment purpose there. 
He didn't do that to hurt you. He didn't do that to break you down. He didn't do that to scar you. Well, I take that back. He did that to scar you because he wants that scar to say, this is where God loved me in a way that I cannot explain. This is who God is. This scar right here, that's what that's about. He didn't do that to break you. He did that to build you. So if that's you, and it's all of us probably in some way or another, if that's you, stop waiting on him to raise the dead to life. Stop waiting on him to change history. Start seeking him because he's willing to make the future different because of what he's done in the past. All right? And so I don't think that God is interested in bartering with you because the truth of the matter is that he is God. And whether you want to acknowledge it or not, he is God. And one day you will breathe your last breath and you will wake up on the the other side and there will be no other choice but to say, wait a minute, he really is God. This is who I thought I was bartering with. And you'll wake up on the other side and you'll say, I I really am sorry because I didn't know who I was dealing with. Wake up and know that he is God and you're not. And the universe and the world revolves around him and he is gracious and kind enough and loving enough to include you in it. The other way to, involve, to interpret this passage, and it's the way that I see it, is that Jacob had a dream where God personally promises to give him, not his children, not his de- de- descendants. God is now speaking to Jacob, and he says to Jacob that these things I'm giving to you. Jacob is now that descendant. And not only is God saying these things I'm giving to you, but he's saying that that what is happening is, is God has now moved into this equation closer than he did with Abraham, closer than he did with Isaac. Because with Abraham, he kept saying, these promises are for someone else. And in Isaac, he basically did the same thing too. He goes, okay, you're the child of the sea, but these promises are going to be for someone else. And now all of a sudden, God has changed the equation, and he comes to Jacob and says, those promises that were for someone else, they were for you. They were for you. And so, I look at this passage, not one, where, God is, where, not one where, where Jacob is saying, if God does this, I'll follow him. I look at it more like, if that's who you are, if that's the promises you're making, I'm going to follow you. If that's what's happening here, then yes, you're my God. I'm going to follow you. If you're really going to be with me, if you're really going to bring me back from this journey, if you're really going to, to, to keep me and give me food, and you're going to do all this stuff, absolutely. You are worthy of praise. You're worthy of honor. You're worthy of my allegiance. Now then, which if are you? Which if are you? Are you sitting there Or every day of your life, are you walking through your life going, if only God would do this, I would follow him. Doesn't he know that? He's God. He could do this in a heartbeat. Why didn't he do it? Or are you one who's like going, oh my gosh. (laughs) He is that God and he is worthy of me following him. 
If all this is true about you, God, I'm following you. Which if are you? Which if? Are you bartering with him? Are you wanting to make a deal with him? Let me tell you something. You got nothing to put on the table that he didn't already give you. The breath in your lungs, he put it there. All that money you think you got, he gave it to you. All those good looks you got, actually, that's no one in this room. But anyway, all those good looks you got, he gave them to you. I mean, like, you got nothing to put on the table to barter with God about. Nothing. And yet, in this audacity, in this, this hubris of human pride, we go and say, the world revolves around me. And say, so, well, God, here I am, and this is what I want. I'm waiting on you. If that's you, man, I'm sorry for you. If that's you, you're going to be disappointed to the day you wake up on the other side of heaven and go, oh, my. And if you didn't trust Christ, I'm going to just tell you straight out, you're still going to be greatly disappointed. My prayer is that we probably find ourselves doing both ifs at any given time. But my prayer is that all of us are growing and growing and growing into a giant, wilder understanding that we serve a kind of God that it's, if this is God, I will follow him. Today, which if are you? Let's pray. Father, I know I've tried to make a few deals with you. I'm sorry. I know all the time I think that I could follow you better if maybe I heard from you more often. If you just spoke to me, I could follow you better. If, and I have all my ifs, and I confess them right now, and, and my prayer is that you would reveal my ifs to me so that I could repent of them and I could walk away from them and I could seek you, and I'd find you to be far bigger than I've ever imagined, far greater than I've ever imagined. And I would walk away not saying, if God would just deal with me, I'd follow him. I would walk away from you saying, if this is who you are, I have no choice but to follow you. May that be who we are as a church. And may we draw each other out to seeing you as being that if if this is who God is, I've got to follow him. Thank you that you are that God. Whether we acknowledge it or not, you are still God. You don't need our approval. You don't need our, our, our acknowledgement. You don't need us to say you really are. You don't need that from us because you are God. You were God before. You would be God in, at the end. And we are here because of your gracious kindness. So we praise you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen and amen.